Oh, good morning. So my name is Brad. I uh, have the privilege of being one of the leaders here. And it is my honor to be able to talk with you about Scripture this morning. I hope you're ready. Thanks. That just made my life way easier. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along, I encourage you to do so. Stick your hand up and one of our fantastically attractive men will put one in your hand. If you... Why are you laughing so much? I would kill to look like these guys. Uh, if you don't... I didn't hear it. Oh, lose. I'm going to stop right there in support of, in support of my brothers. Uh, if, you, uh, if you don't own a Bible and you just got one put in your hand and you like it, keep it. Uh, this book will, without question, change your life. Um, not because the book is inherently a magic book, um, but because the one who uttered the words that are on these pages is alive and well, and we are going to talk about him this morning. That's why we were talking about Mexico, the trips that we did there. Why do we do that type of thing? We do it because God is alive and well, and people need to hear about it. That's the plan for this morning. I do not come to you um, with some uh, big, big message of prosperity. Uh, I do not come to you with a list of 10 things that if you implement these things, you will uh, win friends and influence people. Uh, when Jesse first posed the idea of speaking, it was, it was probably six or seven weeks ago to me uh, that he asked me to speak on this day, and I, I had no idea what it is that I needed to speak about. Um, but I was reading um, in a book of scripture that the more time I spent with it, the more beautiful Jesus became to me. And that seemed like that was worth doing this morning. I hope that you'll feel the same way. I want to start this way. Uh, see if this sounds a little bit familiar to you. A long time ago, there was a city that was built on a major highway. You, you might call it an interstate. They didn't call it an interstate, but you probably could if you wanted to. A main highway that, as a result of it, the world was constantly passing in and through this city. With all of that world influence, uh, the city picked up a lot of money, a lot of jobs. And as a result, people didn't necessarily have to spend a lot of time worrying about where their next meal was going to come from because they had everything that they needed. And in a life of luxury and affluence, as a result, they spent a little bit more time um, thinking about things, being exposed to the ideas that were traveling through on the highway that was uh, going through their town. Now, there was a church that was planted in this town, but what was kind of interesting about this church is that you, you might be a little bit more familiar with the churches that were planted by like these super apostles, like the names that you would recognize. The church in this town was not planted by one of those super apostles. You wouldn't even recognize the name of the individual that planted that church. Just an average guy trying to honor Jesus with his efforts. And as people responded to that message of the gospel, the church began to build. But while they were building, they still looked and thought a lot like the culture that was around them. All of the different ideas that had a tendency to swirl around their minds. And their thoughts and their views began to kind of crowd their mind of how, how they should enjoy themselves. How they should make more money. How they should spend that money. What life ought to look like for themselves. And they spent so much time thinking about these, 
these ideas that were constantly swirling around them, that their minds became distracted. Paul, who had not been to the church, decided that it would be necessary to write to this church to try to help them not be as distracted. The church that I'm telling you about, though I feel like it could be really indicative of Sierra Bible Church in Truckee, is actually the church at Colossae. The book of Colossians, which is what you should open to right now, was written, it's a letter written from Paul to the church that was built in Colossae. And the point was to try to address all of these thoughts that were now swimming through the minds of this church that had all of these influences constantly distracting them. Where we're going to focus our attention is in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 13. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to read from the ESV. Hopefully that's the version that they stuck in your hand. And we're going to read Colossians 1, 13 through 20. Starting in verse 13, it says this, He, referring to Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, you are beautiful to us. Help us see in this passage just how beautiful you are, that we might be more enraptured with how great you are and that might minimize all of the things that have a tendency to captivate our minds. We give you this time. Amen. You can be seated. Hopefully, hopefully the description that I gave you of what was going on in Colossae, like I said, I feel like there's a lot of analogy to the church in Truckee. The church in Truckee that um, was on a major interstate with all kinds of affluence and recreation constantly surrounding us. And in the middle of this, of this uh, location, uh, a guy just shows up from Moab, Utah, and takes a hold of this church. And God uses that man to turn it into the church in which you and I now sit. Nothing, no spiritual giant fanfare, no ticker tape parade, just people being faithful to spread the message of Jesus. And it continues to this day. But the problem that was affecting Colossae was the same problem that would affect us. All of the things that have a tendency to happen all day long have a tendency to distract us from what's actually the most important thing. And I would think that the message from Paul to Colossae would, ex would be exactly the same message that he would give if he showed up this morning. We need you to see Jesus. See how great he is. So without further ado, let's do it. 
Let's look at verse 13. I mistakenly a moment ago told you that the first he that's there in verse 13 references Jesus. It's actually referencing more specifically the Father from verse 12. But that the Father has delivered us from the authority of darkness and made us stand in the kingdom of his Son whom he loves. You see, the, the key thing that we've got to remember at the beginning, as, at the outset, is that there's only two teams at play in life. There is no neutral. You are either under the authority of darkness or you are in the kingdom of his son. There's not a middle ground. And that's, that's probably one of the biggest hurdles that people have a tendency to uh, not be able to jump over. I don't know about you, but in my efforts to interact with people about Jesus, rarely do I interact with people that are like, you know what, I have philosophical disagreements with the message that you're giving to me. It's pretty rare. It's out there, and that's fun for me. But most of the time, it's just that it's irrelevant. That's good for you, but I don't need it. The hardest people for me to try to give the message of Jesus to are good people. Good people. I don't know if you've had that in your experience as well, but we are surrounded by relatively good people, right? Because we've set our standards pretty low. As long as I can avoid murder, I'm good to go, right? As long as I get through the day and I didn't intentionally hit anyone with my car, I'm probably doing okay. Paul tells us that there's actually only two teams. You are either under the authority of darkness, whether you like it or not, or you have been transferred by the Father into the kingdom of the Son, whom he loves. How did this happen? How could this happen? The manner by which it happened is in verse 14. In this Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love this word, redemption, that's here. It's, it's, a, it's a very churchy word, but if you actually look at it in, its, in the core of what it is, it actually could be, the idea could be best translated, the payment of bail. I don't know if you're familiar with what the bail process looks like, but basically when you're accused of doing something wrong and you get thrown in jail, you have a ways to wait until you're then going to get in front of a judge. Bail helps you get out so you don't have to spend that whole time in jail. But here's what's interesting about the word that's used. It's not a statement about whether you did or did not the thing. It's a statement about the payment being made for you. Why? Because Paul knows you did it. You're guilty. I'm guilty. Let's not waste time trying to talk about and fool ourselves with this thought that we are good people. We're not. We screwed up. And we continue to do so if you're anything like me. The beauty is that the payment was made in the forgiveness of sins. What was the means by which this happened? Verse 15. This happened through the Son who is the image of God who is unseen or invisible. He was the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the visible person of the triune God. Now, I don't know if you remember the story of Moses when he thought that it would be a good idea to see God. God's response to that initially was, um, no, no, it would not. 
it would not be a good idea because you will die. Moses goes, you know, I think it would be a good idea, right? Because that's typically how we respond to God when he tells us things. No, I think I might know better. God goes, okay, fine. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to post you up in essentially what amounts to a bomb shelter. For real. Read the text if, you're checking, if you need to fact check me. Puts him in essentially what would be a bomb shelter and says, I'm still not even going to fully let you see this whole situation. I'm just going to kind of pass by. And what you'll see is the reflection of my glory as it passes by you while you're protected in this bomb shelter. That's the only way that we can pull this off. Moses says, deal. It happens. Do you remember what happens after that moment when Moses goes down the hill? He walks up to the people and they react something like this. Holy cow, get out of here. Why? Because the sunburn just from the reflection of God's glory was so bright. They literally asked him, hey, you're going to need to put a bag over your head if you're going to be speaking to us because we can't deal with how much God's glory has affected you. This is not even the version of, the, of God's glory itself. Friends, try to remember this the next time you're just like, God, I can't figure out why you won't show yourself to me. Probably because you can't handle it. It, it might kill you. Good news is, God figured out a way to make this happen for the rest of us. Jesus shows up in human flesh and is the direct image of God. And he is what's labeled as, in this verse, the firstborn. Now, don't get yourself thrown off on this idea of firstborn. This word in Greek is prototokos. It's the word that we have built our word prototype from. It's a word that we're probably getting a little bit more familiar with as car makers continue to put out prototypes, right? They build this car and they say, this could be what you would own from us. Are you interested? It's got all of these wonderful things. This is our prototype. And they use that to, type, to try to gauge the interest of the public. That prototype is the representation of all, those, all that that car could be for you and all the wonderful ways that it could change your life. Jesus, being the prototype, is the one showing you not only how great God is, but even giving you a vision of who you could be. He's the firstborn, not in the sense of procreation, but also the sense of position. When somebody dies, like when, when the parents of a family die, who's responsible to execute the will? Most of the time. Yeah, you guys are all Westerners. You're like, the lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> right? But what it used to be, and still in many places is, it's the firstborn's responsibility to do that. Not because the firstborn is better. Not because the firstborn is smarter. It's just the position that the firstborn holds in the family. As once the removal of the parents has occurred, now this person stands as the representation of the family. Don't get thrown off of this firstborn being a, a created concept. This is instead a, a, a claim of Jesus' power and authority and sovereignty over all things. If you don't believe me, look at the next verse. Verse 16. And in the text, 
And the ESV doesn't necessarily translate the next word, the first word of verse 16, the first word of verse 16 as because. It, it translates it as for. But I want you to understand that however you want to translate that word, I like using the word because, it's explaining what was stated before. Paul says to, to the Colossians, Jesus is the prototype. He's the firstborn because, and then he provides this explanation. What's the explanation? Because in him finds its origin, was created all things. Okay. With that in mind, I want to point you to something that maybe you didn't see the first time we read through this text. For the next four verses, the phrase all things shows up seven times. If you're not a Bible scholar, you should still be able to get this concept. If a phrase is used seven times in four verses, you can chalk that up to a main point. And in order to ensure you and I leave with the idea that this is the main point, we're going to try a little exercise. Okay? means I hope you're going to have to warm up your vocal cords. I uh, don't like a version of church that you're supposed to be silent in, so I always try to find ways in which we have to interact. It'll be, it'll be minor. When I was a kid, there was a show called Pee-wee's Playhouse. Um, it's <laughs> I'm glad there are more people that remember this show in, for, in second service, fortunately. Now, the show, unfortunately, kind of fell from grace, but uh, the... <laughs> But before all that happened and the magic was still in play, one of the best parts about Pee-wee's Playhouse is that it was interactive. And one of the interactive ways was that Pee-wee had the secret word. And when the secret word was said as part of the episode, your job was to respond by going, ah, to the secret word. Now, good news. You will not have to do that with the hands and the screaming and the tongue and all that stuff. However, what I would like to do is this. From this point out until I stop you, whenever you hear me say the phrase, all things, I want you to respond by saying, all things. Okay? You can yell if you want to, that's fine. But, but for those of you that are a little bit more reserved in life, all I need you to do is when I say all things, I want you to say all things. Oh, we're getting there. This is good. We'll practice for those of you that were slow to catch on. All things. Good. That had chutzpah to it for sure. I appreciate that. Okay. So remember, we're trying to explain why Jesus is the firstborn. In what manner is he the firstborn? Verse 16, because in him was originated all things. Good. That hit me in my heart. In heaven, on the earth, that which is visible or can be seen, that which is invisible and can't be seen, whether thrones or lordships or rulers, or authorities, all things were through him, by means of him, and they were for him. That's why they were created. We see that the earth and the sky, everything that's physical and everything that is metaphysical, all authority 
Everything by him and for him was created. He was the beginning of all things. Did you notice what you've been saying this whole time? I'm not saying most things. Now, notice, for those of you that are actually very precise and maybe a little bit prone like me to doubt, notice I didn't say that everything that currently exists was created by him because there are certain abilities that he has endowed his creation to then create. That's why Paul is precise with his language here. He actually says that he is the inception, the beginning, the origination of all things. You guys are starting to lose your strength. (laughs) Don't believe me? Verse 17. He is before, earlier than, prior to all things. And all things in him are held together or are made able to stand. I love the word that's here. It reminds me of uh, my wife and I have the opportunity to serve in the nursery once a month. I love being around babies. I love being around toddlers because initially when they're born, they're just nothing but just like this pudgy sack of flesh, right? And they're just flopping around and they can't do anything at all. But as they start to grow in strength and they start getting to the point where they walk, the first thing that they do is they find themselves something that they can stand up on and they kind of do this, right? Have you seen this before? It's so fun. Then they start to take those steps, right? That vision of what that was when they first stood, that's the word that's there. That Christ, in his power, is taking all things and upholding it and giving it a place in which it can stand or by which it can stand. There is nothing that is occurring that does not have Jesus somehow upholding it. More on that in a moment. If that wasn't enough, Paul continues to try to impress us by showing why we're even here, that he is the head of the body, the church. He's the ruler, Arche, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in order that it may be in all things that he would hold preeminence. Friends, I don't know if, you are ever, if you've ever had the experience of the occult, the dark story that is happening in our midst on a daily basis. If you talk to missionaries that work in other cultures, they very commonly have interacted with these things that show up only in horror movies with people levitating and people and all kinds of dark things occurring. The enemy doesn't even need to do that here. I don't know if you've n- ever seen that before, but it's, it's too easy what he has to be able to do here. All he has to do is distract you. We've got plenty to think about, don't we? Because we're not necessarily too worried about even what we got to eat. We're thinking about, I don't, I don't really like my job. What should I wear? 
why is that person mad at me? I don't think my boss likes me very much. Why, what's that funny noise my car is making? Well, I'm not even really sure if my kids are going to figure this out. These are, these are things that we're constantly swirling through our minds. And the enemy, are any of those things bad? Let's be clear. I don't think I was clear enough with this last service. Any of the things I just said right there, are any of those bad? No. No. The tool of the enemy is to take those things that are not bad and instead to put those in the place of the primary importance in your mind. And that's, what, that's all it takes. Instead, Paul says, that Christ already holds the point of preeminence around all things. He is more important than, than them all. He is more, uh, he is in charge of them all. We've already talked about how he's holding them all together, swirling in and out of everything you and I are doing on a daily basis. Our attention just needs to be drawn to the reality that is occurring right in front of our faces. Verse 19. The reason why Jesus is capable of being, the, of being this for us is that because in him it was thought good for the fullness of God to dwell. His preeminence comes from the fact that he is fully God. And at this point, you're probably starting to notice some more parallels with stuff that Paul has said before. We're going to address that in just a moment. Let's go to verse 20 to drive our passage home. And it was through him that he reconciled all things unto himself, making peace through his blood of his cross on his account, whether the things that are on earth or the things that are in the heavens. You know, verse 20 is one of those verses that uh, you ever heard that phrase with familiarity or familiarity breeds contempt? I've had the honor uh, of being around the church for basically 34 years. And um, in, in so doing, a lot of the times I, I hear about Jesus' creative power and his redemptive power, and I forget the brilliance and beauty that both of those lie within one person. Here's what I mean by this. We're familiar with stories of creation, right? So think about this guy here, right? This is not uh, Herman Munster. Uh, although Herman Munster, do you, do you guys know Herman Munster at all? Okay, good, good. I never know if my references are working. I'm just like listing all the TV shows that I watched as a kid here. But um, this, this is the depiction of Frankenstein's monster. This story, which was written back in the beginning of the 1800s by Mary Shelley and ended up becoming what, what played as the foundation for the horror genre in general, was a story, a very simple story, that you and I have heard time and time again about somebody who in their brilliance was capable of creating, but how their creation got out of control and they couldn't do anything about it. Think about that story and how often you've heard that story before. If you need another example, let me show you one of my favorite ones, another reach to my childhood. Uh, if you are not familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, shame on you. 
is the most literary, it's, it's the most beautiful work of literary art other than the Bible that I could point you to. If, if you are not familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, I have all the books. You may loan them from me. It's time to, uh, to expose you to accurate culture, okay? Uh, one of Calvin's escapades, Calvin was capable of, uh, how many of you are familiar? I just need to see how much I need to explain this. This is much better than the first service. Good, good on you. But we're still not even to critical mass. Shame on the rest of you. Uh, Calvin is capable of doing all kinds of fantastic things with cardboard boxes. This cardboard box that was before you used to be a transmogrifier, which could change somebody to a completely different species. Uh, that is important for you to know in the future for what I'm about to say. But when you turn it on its side, it becomes a duplicator. The reason why Calvin needed a duplicator was because his mother did the unthinkable and told him to clean his room. How the outrage that my mother is telling me to clean my room. I will not do this. So instead, he creates the duplicator and he duplicates himself so that he can enslave this copy, this Xerox version of himself and get his Xerox copy to do his work. Here's the problem he didn't think about ahead of time. When he duplicated himself, he duplicated himself. So as soon as the Xerox copy comes out, he says, clean my room. And the thing's like, no, <laughs> why would I do that? And instead, this copy goes on to wreak havoc into his life, not the least of which he copies himself multiple times over. And now there are six Calvins running amok, causing all kinds of problems in his life, getting Calvin, to, uh, getting Calvin in trouble for all kinds of different things. Calvin had creative power, but he couldn't redeem it and try to make it right when things started to go wrong. Fortunately for Calvin, he still had access to his transmogrifier. I know you want to hear the ending of the story. So he ushers all of the copies into the transmogrifier and transmogrifies them into worms and then frees them into the dirt. That's how you solve the problem in case you ever face it. But, but nonetheless, I bring this up be because one, it allows me to talk about Calvin and Hobbes and church, which I think is really important. But two... Two, it's because it's indicative of this story that you and I are very familiar with. People that are capable of creating, but when things start to go in a negative direction, it's now unstoppable. Here is the beauty of our Jesus. He created, but when things looked like they were going south, he said, whoa, 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 wait. It's all under control. I can still handle this. And he reconciled all things. Good, you're waiting for it. Reconciled them to himself. That's not just human beings. Paul says in some of his other writings elsewhere in Romans that creation itself is groaning and awaiting the return of Jesus because even with the beauty of the things that God could create, it's still not exactly the way that it's meant to be. And one day, that will be bliss. You know those little moments that you experience that feel like they're heaven? Be it street tacos or Squaw Valley or whatever the case may be in your specific life. That little bit, that's just a taste of what it will be. 
I want to point out something else in this text that you may have missed the first time around. I've made allusion to it, and now I'm going to take just a moment to, to point this out. This is kind of a Bible nerd thing. If you get really turned off by Bible nerdiness, just turn your ears off for a couple of minutes. I'll, come, I'll, I'll tell you when to come back. But for the rest of you that are willing to kind of jump into the, the nerd pool with me for just a moment, I want to point out something that is used uh, specifically in New Testament uh, literature, although it does show up in the Old Testament, that Bible scholars have, uh, have referenced as a chiasm. And what a chiasm is, is it's a literary structure that, uh, that is used to drive home a specific point. Paul, in this text, I believe, uses a chiasm to try to drive home a specific point that I want you to see. I've drawn out the chiasm for you. You can see how a chiasm, if you look on the left-hand side of the screen, it kind of makes a triangle. So to spoil where we're going, the main point is the point of the triangle. But look at how it's structured here, and then look at the text to kind of check me out and see what we're actually doing here. If you look at verse 13 and 14, you see that we make reference to the Father redeeming us and, and making us to stand in God's kingdom. If you then look at verse 20, you see how Jesus is reconciling us, bringing all things back to himself. Nice. You even caught the sneaky one. At least some of you did. Then you look at the next, the next uh, indent in, the parallel idea that's there in verse 15, how we got a reference to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. In verse 19, we see that it was in him the fullness of God was dwelling. A parallel idea. We then move on to the next parallel idea. That in verse 16, that Jesus was the originator of all things. Some of you jumped the gun on that one. And he was in charge of, of not just the things that were created, but even the power structures that are there. The word that is used there is the arche. And in verse 18, what we see is that Jesus is still the head of the body in the church, the first one from the dead, and that he, that he is the arche, the beginning, the firstborn in verse 18, another parallel idea. The point of all of this, point, see point of the triangle, see what I did there? That's a pun, I did that intentionally. Point of the chiasm, the key point, double pun, is verse 17. What Paul is driving us to is to understand that Jesus precedes, he is before, he is earlier than, he predates all things, and he also holds together all things. Okay, that can be the last one that you do, because I'm going to start to try to tie this in. Hopefully by this point, you're recognizing that the driving point behind what Paul wants you to get is that Jesus precedes and upholds all things. How many things? I promised you the last one was last, and I didn't make good, so I apologize for that. Not just some things. Not just the, the happy things. Not just the churchy things. Everything. Friends, I don't know what type of week that you have had, 
be it a mountaintop or a valley. I've talked to people that had both. But the beauty is that we can recognize the power that Jesus has displayed, not just in creating and reconciling everything, but in so doing, continuing to hold all things together. Whatever has happened, whatever does happen, whatever will happen, is that way because Jesus is orchestrating it. Whatever ecstasy you have, it is his blessing for your enjoyment. Whatever pain you are enduring, it's his blessing for your strengthening. Whatever seems to make no sense, it's his blessing for your growth. Whatever direction you even think that you're following, he's working in the background, directing your steps to still accomplish his purposes. As the band is coming up to respond back to God, I want to leave you with this thought. If you want to live a life of wisdom, if you want to find fulfillment, if you want to know peace in your life, you must direct yourself to what sits at the core of all things. Jesus, who loves you, who reconciles you, redeeming you through his blood and drawing you into his greatness. Friends, do yourself a favor this week. Seek him. Seek to understand him. Seek to know him deeply. Seek to emulate him and worship him. For he created all things and holds together all things. And all things will one day turn to worship him again. That's why we do it now. Let's get a head start on it.